making his decision whether he wants to go or not. Uh, if you would turn to Romans <clears throat> chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll be in verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is the word of the, of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We come this morning to a very well-known passage. This passage is the theme of churches. It is oftentimes, you'll hear people say, this is my life verse. Uh, I've seen it pressed into t-shirts. If people are going to memorize scripture, this is one of those scriptures that they memorized. It's used as a word of comfort, as a word of encouragement. In recent weeks, particularly in light of last month being Reformation, October being Reformation Month as it were, uh, we've talked about, we talked about in Sunday school about Martin Luther and his great Reformation, Luther, who through some hard circumstances ended up becoming a monk. He entered the monastery And after a time in the monastery, growing very disheartened with the efforts that he gave in trying to be a good and faithful monk, uh, this is what he said, and I, I quoted this in part a few weeks ago, but it says, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my orders more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I would certainly have been entitled to it. Of all this, the friars who have known me can testify. If I had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortification even to death by means of watchings, prayers, readings, and other labors. Luther was a good monk. He was diligent in all his works, and yet in all his works, he found no peace. He found no peace, and it was through the guidance of his friend who pointed him to the Bible, and he started studying the Bible, and as he studied the Bible, he started studying Romans. And it was here in our text today that Luther found freedom. It was not about what he had done, but what had God done for him. This, later in life, this is some quotes Luther would say about this text. I'm going to give you four quick quotes. Concerning Romans 1, 16 and 17, it is the chief article from which all our other doctrines have flowed. It is the master and prince, the Lord and ruler and judge over all kinds of doctrines. It is the article of justification, excuse me, if the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist one hour. Luther put great store and stock in these verses and in the doctrine of justification. Maybe he overstated his, its importance. I don't think so. 
He saw it as being something of the utmost importance. And Paul uh, similarly sees it as being the utmost important. Why is this so important to both Paul and to Luther? What is, as Luther calls it, justification all about? Justification in essence is an answer to this question. How are we made right with God? Is it something that I have to do? Is it something that he does? How are we to understand it? The Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter catechism, answers it this way. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. <clears throat> Paul here in Romans has been telling us about his calling, about his calling to, to preach the gospel, about his calling to come to Rome to preach the gospel. We have last week seen this section on thanksgiving and prayer and he's about to move from that section and technically we, we could say our verses today are part of that section but really they serve as a transition Paul is going to give us the theme for which all of Romans is built upon he wants us to know what the theme is he wants to go to Rome he wants to preach the gospel And he's going to tell us why. We're going to see this today in three points. First, we're going to see the lack of shame. Second, we're going to see the power of God. And third, we're going to see the righteousness revealed. Let's begin by looking at the lack of shame. We saw last week that Paul was eager to go to Rome. He had been longing to go to Rome. He'd been trying to, but had been hindered to this point. And now he says, let me tell you why I'm so eager. It is because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now we may at this point be tempted to question Paul's language. Why is Paul using this negative to talk about his unashamedness of the gospel? Why didn't he say, well, I'm proud of the gospel. That's different, right? If I say I'm proud of something, that's different than saying I'm not ashamed of it. They're the same, but they're different. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. He knows that it brings power. The power of God leading to salvation. We see this power throughout scripture. He says it's the power of God to deliver his people. And over and over and over again through scripture, he has been delivering his people. Maybe one of the greatest examples of this is the Exodus. He delivered them out of Egypt into the promised land. God holds the power to deliver his people. He's bringing to them salvation from all sorts of evil. This includes the ultimate deliverance from sin and death. He has restored the sinner to share in the glory of God. What are we to make of this reconciliation? James Boyce says it this way. 
First, he reconciled us to himself. Christ has died for us, bearing our sins in his own body on the cross. Second, he has reconciled us to one another. We are now set free to love them as Jesus loved us, or love him as Jesus loved us. Third, he has reconciled us to ourselves in Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are now able to become what God has always meant us to be. God has power to reconcile us, and therefore, we are not to be ashamed. We are not to be ashamed. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Paul Forrest has put a troubling and yet bold statement out here. I don't think we like to believe that we can be ashamed of the gospel. We're better than that, right? We, we'll never fail in our faith in such a way. Uh, we also like to say we are not like Peter who would deny Jesus three times, right? The ultimate expression of shame. Aren't you one of his disciples? <laughs> no, 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 not me. Nope, 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 not me. Paul has to be exaggerating, right? We believe that he has the power to save us. Yet don't we, on a daily basis, proclaim that we are ashamed of the gospel? When we have the opportunity to tell someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ and we make an excuse not to do it, what are we communicating? I am ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's important enough. I'm not proud of it. When we don't stand up and declare what is true and what is a lie, we are ashamed of the gospel when we create idols in our hearts and we put those in place of God. We are ashamed of the gospel. In so many ways, on a daily basis, we show ourselves as being ashamed. Here's the reality. We, we might say, well, why is Paul saying this? Paul himself would not have said it if it was not a real temptation for Paul. Why would he say it? Paul, this Pharisee, this Jew of Jews who had modeled his whole life so that others could look at him and be awed of who he was. And he had been taken down a peg or a hundred <laughs> And he'd been made the lowest of the low. Not only was he not going to be a missionary to the Jewish people, the people who he wanted to model his life for, he was going to go to the Gentiles, the people that he hated. He was going to be the low man on the totem pole, as it were. Would it have not have been easier for Paul to go, I, just, I can't, no, this is not what I, I signed up for. 
I'm going to go back to being my Pharisee of Pharisee. I'm going to go back to holding the coats of those who are stoning Christians. That's easier. There's a temptation for him to be ashamed of the gospel, but he's not ashamed. Because it is the power of God for salvation. He is saving his people. This is a theme that we're going to see throughout Romans. God's saving power is available to who? To everyone who believes. What does that mean? That his power of salvation is to everyone who believes. Does this remove Christ from the picture? Is it all about the one who has faith? This is not what Paul's getting at here. The language of faith has become so tied to what God has done in Christ. To believe then is to put full trust in God who justifies the ungodly by means of the cross and the resurrection. Over and over again, Paul emphasizes that we are to surrender to God. And yes, it is an act of the will, but we have to be careful. This is largely what has separated those of the Reformed faith from not the Reformed faith. What is the difference between election versus free will? This is what Paul is talking about here. And he's not saying that we as Christians are totally passive in our conversion. We are not totally passive. There is a response that we must give, yet it is also not something that we do. It's a response, an accepting of a gift that God holds out to us in grace. John Calvin says it this way, faith is a kind of vessel with which we come empty and with the mouth of our souls open to seek God's grace. Believing is a real, genuine human activity, but it possesses no merit of worth that God is somehow bound to reward. It is not our mere believing. Salvation is first, from first to last, a work of God. And this gospel comes to all those who believe. This phrase occurs four times throughout the book of Romans. For all those who believe. In each case, the context is the same. It refers to the breaking down of barrier between Jew and and Greek between Jew and Gentile. This is a barrier that had to be removed. This is what Paul's been talking about up to this point. I am coming for all nations, not no longer just for the Jew. But he goes on to say something and kinds of muddy Paul likes to muddy the water for us, right? Let's just stop there and we'll we'll be done with it. No, he says something more. It's for everyone who believes to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Now, Paul, if you would have been kind to us, you could have just left the first out. To the Jew and to the Gentile. That would have been good for us, right? What does he mean here by saying it's for the Jew and first and for the Gentile? And some will try to remove this, that this priority is merely a historical accident. Maybe not accident is the best word, but it's just historical. 
It came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. We see this in Acts. It flows out of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world. I think there's more going on here. And we're not going to look at it totally today because Paul's going to go on and press this theme throughout Romans. Israel was given the promise first. And these promises still particularly apply to them. And that's as much as you're going to get from me today. (laughs) We'll see more of this as we go throughout Romans. But what we do see here is that it's for the Jew first and also to the Greek. We must understand what the power of God is. He is the one who has power to save us. We have been separated from him because of our sin. And there's nothing that we can do to bridge that gap. But he has the power to reconcile us. And through that power, he has brought us salvation. He has saved us from the world. He has saved us from sin and death. And he has brought us into life. How has he done this? For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Paul tells us that the gospel is being revealed, that his righteousness is being revealed. This idea, this concept is one that is very important in scripture. This idea of the righteousness of God being revealed. And as we go through scripture, if we were to do a study of it, we'd see that most often it has to do with God's redemptive plan. He is continuing to reveal his righteousness throughout redemptive history. It, It is in essence the way that God makes known to us the righteousness of God. Wherever and whenever the gospel is being preached, The righteousness of God is being revealed. But what then is the righteousness of God? Paul doesn't use this phrase all that often. He uses it once in 2 Corinthians, and then he uses it a few times here in Romans. That's it, this phrase, the righteousness of God. And yet every time he uses it in Romans, he does it in conjunction with, with expressing the theme of the letter. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This makes it significant if we're to understand what Paul's talking about in Romans. So what is Paul talking about? And there's been much thought, there's been much ink spilled over this issue. And there are three dominant views of what's going on here. Some say that it might refer to an attribute of God. So simply it's saying that this is God's righteousness as an attribute. And so we are, the attribute of God's righteousness is being revealed to us. This has had some popularity. But we have to understand here that Paul was talking about communicating the gospel to us. It has to be more than a mere attribute of God. 
So others say it might refer to a status that is given to us by God. This was Luther's interpretation here. He said, he looked at this as being forensic, or we look at a courtroom. That is a matter of judicial standing or status. In the courtroom of eternity, our status is that we are now the righteous of God. We are righteous in his sight. Paul here then is revealing the righteous status that is from God. Others say the third dominant issue, uh, view is that it is an activity of God. It's something that God does. The gospel manifest the saving action of God. Now, there are those who have held each of these views singly or any different deviation or combination thereof to interpret this passage. Clear as mud, right? We got a good, we're, good, we're good now. We can move on. What can we see here? We see very, I think, somewhat clearly that what Paul is trying to communicate to us is that we are, the gospel is being revealed to us and we are receiving the gospel. This is the saving activity of God. It is his vindicating, his inter- intervention for us. This is what it looks like when God delivers his people. He reveals to them his righteousness and he then makes them his righteousness. And whatever else we can say about the righteousness of God, whenever Paul uses righteousness, he connects it to faith. For the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith for faith. It is the gift of righteousness that we receive by faith, a status that God bestows on the one who believes. In it, we see both what God does and man's response The righteousness of God is manifested. It is made known to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We see his righteousness and we receive it by faith. It is an activity and it is a gift. It's both and. Right? That's hard. And people fall on both ends of the spectrum. Some will say it's completely a gift and there is no response when he calls us, that's it and it's done. And that's wrong. And there's those who say it's all about our choice. It's about what we do. We have to accept God and he doesn't do anything. If we don't accept him, nothing's going to happen. And that's wrong. It's in the middle. He calls us and then we respond and yet we cannot help but response, response, respond. Both things are happening. God's righteousness never operates in a vacuum. It can only be experienced through faith. It is the activity by which God brings people into relationship with himself. It is what puts us in right standing before our God. And it it requires faith. We're talking about, in in essence, two things here. We're talking about justification, how we're justified. And we have no part in that. We're also talking about sanctification, how we're made holy. And these two things are, are inseparable, but they're also distinct. 
We are declared just and right. Our status is changed. It is a free gift. And then we respond in faith. It's an interesting kind of play on words here. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. How can something be, be revealed for faith, from faith, for faith? Faith is the key to our relationship with God. The life of faith is the product of righteousness. It's responding to his good and gracious call. Brothers and sisters, we cannot, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We live in a world that hates our faith. They hate it. There's, I can't use a stronger word. They look at our faith and they detest it. They mock our God. They call us simple-minded individuals in need of a crutch because they have shed the infancy of their forefathers. And we will be tempted to be ashamed. It's easy to give in. It's easy to trust the world. It's easy to not want to withstand the mocking that the world will give to us. But we have a God who has power. He has the power over all things. He has the power to save us even from this world. And so we come before him, as Paul says to us, and we see the righteousness of God being revealed to us. The right standing that we are, need to have, he is revealing it to us. And it is revealed by faith. It is the thing, the righteousness of God will build our faith It'll grow our faith. And then Paul concludes by saying this, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the great conclusion to the theme of the letter. The righteous shall live by faith. That is a great summary for what Paul's getting at here, isn't it? He's told us what it means to be righteous. He says, to be righteous means that you've heard the call of God who is revealing his son's righteousness to you. You have received it by faith. And therefore, therefore, you must now live by faith. Are you a child of the king? Do you claim Jesus as your own? Then you are his righteousness. You are the righteousness of God. That's an interesting thing for me to say, isn't it? Do you feel like the righteousness of God? 
Now, at this point, you're sitting there in your chair going, well, what does he mean by that? And you probably will start having things go from your head. Did you snap at anybody this morning while getting ready for church? Did you get frustrated with anybody while getting ready for the church? Did you point at your mom in the middle of a congregation and in doing so break the fifth commandment at church? <laughs> Have you had anger in your heart? Have you ever just said, this person has wronged me and I cannot and will not forgive them? You are the righteousness of God. You must live by that righteousness. The whole of your life must reflect this truth. I want to end by giving you two examples. I, I asked for a prayer earlier in, in the day for my father. Some of you may remember several months ago, us sitting in here and Jeff was teaching Sunday school. At the end of Sunday school, I'd left at some point because the church phone rang, and I came back in, and I asked for prayer for my father because he'd been taken to the hospital. He had had some uh, clots. It, we found out later that he had some clots that were in his leg, moved to his lung, and it caused a heart flutter. I was talking to my, my dad while he was in the hospital. As events like that will often do, they begin to put life in perspective, right? And he was questioning how long he could stay in the, the medical field as a single solo practice, practicing doctor. And my brother-in-law who works for Cigna Healthcare uh, said, hey, there's this job coming up. Uh, it needs, they need an allergist with a emphasis in immunology, which there's like maybe 2,000 in the whole country. And my dad said, well, you know what? I'm going to apply for that job. He didn't think much of it, but he was in the hospital. He has a laptop. He applied for that job. Within two months, he had interviewed for that job, and he had received that job. And now he's having to, to close down his practice, and he, he just kept saying, well, no one's going to want to buy this practice. It's just, I've been working at it for 25, 26 years, and it's just, it's just we'll just have to close the doors. And so, but he called the people he bought the practice from and said, you know, I'm leaving if you'd be interested in doing this. And they got really excited about it. And they called him and called him again and said, we're going to meet. Early last week, they called, they called him back and said, we just can't do it. We don't, it's not that we don't have the money. We just don't have the manpower. So my dad's lack of faith was affirmed. And then a few days later, he got a call again. And he said, you know, we just really want to do this. We're, we're going to try to figure it out. And they've been in talks with a guy who they might get down there. And, and it still may not happen. But I remember talking to my dad yesterday. And I said, Dad, you know, I'm preparing the sermon. And I, I'd read, read for him the passage. After I had heard that he had, they had turned him down, I just kept praying. I said, God, you can do whatever you want to do. Just because they've said no doesn't mean that it's over. The righteous shall live by faith. When we look at this world, we can see in, that there's an insurmountable wall. This thing simply cannot happen. It can't happen, and therefore I will reserve myself to the fact that it cannot happen. Is that an example of the righteous living by faith? Now, I know this is a, a temporal example of something that is real and true, but how much of our life do we live that way? I have been praying for this person for X number of years, and they just don't want anything to do with scripture it's impossible 
My mom was telling me the other day of a guy I knew just in, in passing when I worked at the church in Gulfport and um, old, older kid of a, a couple who ended up having a, a younger kid much later and just had wanted nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with scripture, nothing to do with church. And they had been praying for him and praying for him for seven, eight years. That's hopeless, right? You can't, why keep praying? And the other day he, he told his parents he started reading the Bible. The righteous will live by faith. We have come to a time in the life of our church where we are experiencing and have a significant financial questions coming up. And the temptation for us is to treat the church as a business, isn't it? We have to make sure the numbers add up. And if the numbers add up, then it's simply not possible. If the input does not match the output, then we must downsize. The church is not a business, is it? Do we believe that God is in control of all things? All things. Do we believe that God provides for his people? Do we believe that he is faithful to us? Those who he has called the righteousness of God. Because this is the reality. God looks at you and he says, you are the righteousness of God. Do we believe that? We possess and are the righteousness of God. Therefore, we must live by faith. He is in control of all things. He can do all things. We are presented with a real challenge. And I think it is a blessing of God. How will we respond? Will we live by sight? Or will we live by faith? And when it comes down to it, this is the reality of our faith. Now, you can say, well, it's, we're talking about money and we're talking about the church and finances and so on and so forth. And, that, and that's true. But it gets down to a fundamental question that we have to ask ourselves. How are we living? Do we believe that we are justified, that we are adopted, that we are sons, that we are daughters? Do we believe that we are really the bride of Christ and that God cares about us? Do we believe that God has us here in Pell City for a specific purpose and a specific reason? Do you believe that God has you in the job that he has you for a specific purpose and reason? Do you have the friends, the family, the acquaintances, the strangers that come into your life for a purpose and a reason? The righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith, believing that which we cannot see, believing that which we cannot confirm. It is a hard thing to do. But the reality is this, the whole of your Christian walk is living by faith and not by sight. And that's why Paul says in Romans that the gospel of Jesus Christ is folly 
to the unbeliever. Why? Because he cannot see and he cannot quantify with his eyes the reality of what Christ has done. So the world looks at us and they call us foolish. They call us foolish. And that should not surprise us in the least, should it? The righteous shall live by faith because in the power of God, he has revealed and communicated and given to us the righteousness of God. Do we each have, as we saw several weeks ago back in Zechariah, that ephod across our head? Holy, I think I said that right, right? Ephod, holy to the Lord. Do you believe you're holy to the Lord? That he is, you are righteous before him. Would our life, in all aspects of it, be a reflection of what Jesus sees when he looks at us? If Jesus looks at you, if God looks at you, and he sees one thing, who are we to say something else is true? Who are we to live our lives as if something else is true? The God of the universe sees you as righteous. Go and live as if you are righteous. Live as those who are justified by faith in perfect and whole obedience Resting and relying on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on his death and his resurrection, by which you have been made clean, by which you have been reconciled to God. Own who you are. Live in that identity. Do not live according to this world. Do not live as if you are not the righteousness of God. Live by faith. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for Paul and his love of who you are and communicating our status before you. Lord, would we not be ashamed of the gospel? Would we understand that it is indeed the righteousness of God revealed to us through the power of God? And would we in turn live by faith, work this truth in us, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.